we haven't been good enough in the research community at actually sitting there and coming from a position of curiosity. And I think that we need to provide space to take more risks in research. And I think that when you take more risks, that's when you've got the opportunity to really go after some of these really big ideas. Hi, I'm Susie. And I'm James. And you're listening to Soils for Life. Each episode, we're bringing you stories about soil, the opportunities in the ground and the challenges above it. In the face of climate change, it's widely recognised that we need a major rapid reconfiguration of our food systems and that research will play a vital role in shaping our future landscape. Scientific research is really good at honing in on specific issues to investigate targeted solutions. But nature doesn't always work that way. The fundamental principle of regenerative agriculture is to observe landscapes as a whole system and to build resilience by embracing ecological complexity. So in this episode, we ask, how can research better engage with and support farmers and build a strong evidence base for regenerating agricultural soils and landscapes. We'll hear from two farmers that have transitioned to regenerative practices and two researchers working in this space. We'll begin with Colin Size and his incredible story of recovery. His farm, Winona, in central western New South Wales, was suffering from the effects of a devastating bushfire and declining soil health. My family settled here in the 1860s. But then my father started, I guess, the forerunner of industrial agriculture in the 1930s. He grew wheat for 20 years straight and, and destroyed the farm, basically. He found that he had no grassland left. All the native grassland was destroyed for those wheat-growing years. But the real cruncher came in 1979. We had a major bushfire here. And it came in through from the northwest and burnt the whole farm. The fire just lit up the whole flat here and the flames came through probably 30 feet high, 10 metres high. And we were caught in it and I was burnt in it. I had, was burnt up the backs of the arms and had virtually no hair left. It was even less than I got now. We, we lost 3,000 of our merino sheep killed in that fire. All the buildings were destroyed and all, virtually all the fencing was destroyed. So we had nothing left. It was just a blackened ruin. We went from a financial situation of going okay to being just instantly broke overnight. So that was a real challenge in how to survive financially. I started to work out how I could do this without spending any money at all, which was the reason that I developed a lot of the things that I did. Being left with nothing, Colin was forced to rethink everything. Colin went from a high input system to a zero input system. He started by observing how the native grasslands recovered on his property and wondered how he could mimic nature. I've always said that the pasture program that I developed always encompasses agronomic principles. It's not anti-agronomic principles, it's just that sometimes we're doing it in a different way. We're, we're building soil and soil health and restoring a soil ecosystem and often managing our pests and our, our nutrient decline, soil nutrient decline, in a more natural manner, letting Mother Nature drive it for us. But I guess the key to pasture cropping is, is do not kill 
perennial pasture species or perennial grassland species. Well, the best way of doing that, which is the point I've got to on my property here, and that's about restoring grassland and restoring the ground cover or the litter on the, on the soil surface to conserve moisture and control weeds and to manage soil temperature. Colin's focus on restoring his native grasslands involved experimentation and observation. Over the years, he built up his flock. He changed his farming practices, introducing rotational grazing and no-till cropping. And from this, he developed pasture cropping, which involves sowing winter crops into dormant perennial native grasslands to restore his soils. It is really simple. We just need to grow plants, plants and more plants. And we, we can often kickstart a, a degraded soil, and I get people to do this, by growing multi-species crops, like mixes of crops, up to 10 species in, in a crop, and then lay one on top of another in the summer and then the winter, and that'll restore soils. We don't need fertiliser to fix soils. We need to feed soil microbes. We don't need to add soil microbes. There's enough microbes there, we just need to feed them. And plants are the things that feed them. We've been told for so long by people with vested interest in selling fertiliser, that if a plant is growing there, it's removing nutrients. That's a great heap of garbage. If a plant is growing there, it's just cycling nutrients. If we cut that plant off and take it away, we've removed nutrients. But if it's cycling and, and graze, and then lay one on top of another in the summer and then the winter, that'll restore soils. Plants can actually increase nutrients in soil, which has been not only demonstrated here, but, but proven here in some research and data that we've collected on this place. Over the years, extensive soil testing on Winona has shown that eliminating all cultivation other than direct drilling for pasture cropping, together with rotational grazing, has enabled dramatic improvements in soil condition and soil carbon. Colin's approach has proven results and he has a lot of data to support his findings. It's interesting, the property here, my, my property, Winona, is, is one of the most researched properties in Australia. We have heaps of data, <laughs> probably more, more than conventional agriculture has. Today, Winona produces similar volumes of wool and grain compared with previous management methods, but annual costs have decreased by over $120,000 and the condition of his land is improving. But rewind 30 years ago, and not everyone was convinced of Colin's approach. When I was developing it from the early 1990s on, some farmers were really interested in what I was doing. Some scientists, but they were, they were limited at that stage, but majority of people, especially agronomists and our Department of Agriculture people, CSIRO, all of those were very, very anti, I mean, extremely so. Colin has a theory about why people have been critical about his practices. I found some of the reason when I addressed ag science students, in that I present a lot of data that we've collected here on the property, because I knew they'd want some sound science behind it. Well, the students were split almost half and half male, female, the girls were very interested in what I was talking about. The boys, there was five or six of them, and they were not interested at all. They just sat down the back with their arms and legs folded. After I was finished, asked no questions at all. However, all the girls and the lecturers, they wanted to ask lots of questions. So I found that really interesting. Part of it is a male problem. I often say that the way to fix 
agriculture and our planet is to have more women involved in agriculture. Then we'll get changed quite quickly. Back then, Colin's lived experience and farming journey was at odds with conventional thinking amongst scientists and agronomists. But over the years, Colin has found that that has evolved. What was interesting is his really early days, local agronomist called Murray Skinner, he probably doesn't mind me mentioning his name. I was going to him and saying, well, I, I want to kill these weeds, but I don't want to kill that grass. And I didn't know, but Daryl Clough, who was involved in those early days, was also asking Murray the same question. And one time I was in there, Murray came up to me and he said, what are you two blokes up to? <laughs> and I told him what, what I was doing and he was fascinated by it. And he's been a good supporter and sometimes contacted me <laughs> reversing the question. He's saying, I've got, got a, a client come into the shop and he, <laughs> he wants to keep this particular weed there. And what have you found works on that? And there are a lot of agronomists now that are on board with this and many are supportive. Of his 30 years of developing pasture cropping, Colin has had mixed reactions to his farming approach. But interest from the research community is growing. One keen observer is Kirsty Yates, a researcher with Soils for Life and the Australian National University. Hi, I'm Kirsty Yates. I have been working at Soils for Life and supporting Regen producers to get better outcomes from research. So a large part of what I've been doing is engaging with the research community and trying to better represent some of the issues, challenges, but also opportunities that Regen Ag brings. One key difference between regenerative farming practices and scientific research is dealing with complexity. Regen producers are really working with really complex ecosystem dynamics and within agriculture and soil science, um, for the most part, we've, we've gotten really good at understanding direct interactions and being able to quantify those and predict them and model them and, and apply them across different landscapes. But when we start getting into these more complex processes and ecological function and landscape processes, it can get really difficult to start to unpack some of those interactions and relationships. A regenerative farming approach is holistic and looks at the ecosystem as a whole but in the scientific world, research questions can be quite narrow. So how do we ensure research outcomes don't lead to simplifying production systems? Because it's complexity that builds resilience. And it's in talking to farmers and producers that Kirsty is seeing the gap between research and practice. Producers were saying that, you know, we want better ways to, to monitor within our own system. So we're not trying to compare, but is my system improving over time? Is, is the ecological function getting better? Am I able to better capture energy, better cycle nutrients, capture more water and store that for longer and, and get more responsiveness? And how do I pull together all these different components of my system? So my research is, is trying to monitor and, and measure those complex ecosystem dynamics. Often those doing things differently can be misunderstood, but maybe they're onto something. We want to explore how the experiences of regen farmers can contribute to agricultural research. Cole Size and Dave Martin, all these guys have often been outliers in what they do. You know, or I hear people talk about the herd quitter, those animals that, that separate and leave the herd and they're doing something different. And I think that we need to be willing to respond to those 
different perspectives and to value that difference rather than just it's on the margins, it's on the edge, it's not important. And so what are those broader outcomes that we're trying to do? And then how do we bring together that rich diversity and draw out the strengths from that rich diversity that we have right across the community, I think is is the important part. Kirsty says, a lot of these farmers are thinking differently to conventional approaches. They're more focused on the whole of the landscape. And so it's important from a research perspective to recognise this and to focus on the landscape outcomes and how farmers are achieving them. I have been out into Collins Place and we, we did some research there, which was just amazing to get down below the surface and have a look at the soils and, and see what was happening. And certainly within the literature and some of the research that has attempted to reflect his ideas around pasture cropping, often the research is very focused around the practice. So, you know, coal has cropped into a pasture, so let's crop into a pasture and test that. And we found, oh, it didn't work. But they missed the role that coal has had over a longer period of time of building the ecological function of in his system of integrating animals in a particular way of having a high level of productivity for example with the number of plants per square meter and so the other element of that is is that level of understanding about ecological function so the research that was attempting to look at some of that it it didn't reflect ideas that are coming from ecology about um, succession and different niche where you've got you know he's got a lot of summer perennial plants and then he's using winter growing fodder crops you know so you've got this separation in when plants are growing that allow those sorts of systems to happen and I think that the role that those ideas that are heavily drawn from ecology but also from Cole's just understanding of his land and space and his development of those over time I think we haven't been good enough in the research community at actually sitting there and coming from a position of curiosity towards those approaches and really unpacking what's really going on. It's about understanding the vision these farmers have for their land and then scientists and researchers helping them monitor and measure the changes in the landscape to see if their management decisions are having the desired outcomes. Many regenerative farmers work largely by observation, so any monitoring and measurement will have better outcomes when researchers and farmers work together. One of the things at Soils for Life, um, we've been involved in the Soil CRC and some other research organisations with ANU and so on. And one of the things that I think we're really trying to encourage is, is getting researchers on the ground with producers. And I know for myself, spending that time um, on the ground, talking about the research questions and the science that I see with a producer and reflecting on their experience together, I think helps strengthen the way that we ask questions um I sort of work I also work in environments where sometimes you know it becomes very lab focused and and separated out from the realities and the complexities of of real agriculture out there in the field you know and working in the field certainly creates some some real challenges but for me I think that really collaborative approach and staying engaged with producers uh, I think often as researchers we don't want to impose on producers and certainly we need to be sensitive about any time impacts but in my experience there's so much value that comes from spending that time and taking that time to work really closely with producers and how we set up and design those research projects and also how we analyze and interpret the information that comes out uh, from those as well um, so I think it, it ends up being a bit more iterative and you know that can be a bit challenging but I think the benefits are just enormous from having that closer collaboration. And by getting out into the paddock, Kirsty said there's an opportunity for researchers to better understand landscape function through the farmer's perspective. 
the ideas about how do you respond to nature and what nature's telling you that it that it needs? How do you build that broader resilience in our system? So we've become so focused on efficiency and delivering yield that I think we've lost sight of those aspects of resilience that help a community of plants cope with those really big extremes. That's something that, that produces I think intuitively feel and, and are responding to and, and making decisions to to manage that resilience, you know, through more effective grazing management, through thinking about their landscape function and processes more broadly and those sort of whole system effects. So I think the opportunity to focus on are we effectively monitoring and supporting producers to communicate the outcomes of what they're doing is an important part of building that stronger support for this incredible work that, that is happening and to to help improve and support the development of those ideas and approaches over time. Kirsty's recently been involved with the Rangelands Living Skin Project, which explores landscape resilience in Western New South Wales. Building resilience in rangelands is essential as they can be quite fragile environments with major ecological tipping points. It's a Meat and Livestock Australia funded project in the New South Wales rangelands. It's led by New South Wales DPI. It has four core producers that are really um, critical part of that management team and are really deeply involved in the development of the project and driving that forward. Um, there's quite a, a group of um, partners within that project. So the Australian National University, local land services, Select Carbon, RCS, Carbon Link. There's a whole range of people that are working together. And one of the things that it was really great like really in the early days you know we all visited each of the farms all of the people involved in the project and spent time with the producers talking about what was happening in their landscapes on their land um, thinking about what are the questions how do we actually solve them how do we deal with some of these complex quite delicate landscapes and some of the challenges that are really being faced so for me um, I think that's a fabulous example of, of industry and researchers and producers working really collaboratively and working really well together and I think that the the research project and the broader elements of the project are really benefiting from that deep involvement of producers in helping to guide that. A big part of what we do at Soils for Life is to develop case studies with a team of researchers, including social scientists. We capture the scientific data on farms along with the lived experience, motivations and mindsets of regenerative farmers. The case studies seek to understand how and why these farmers are able to make a leap of change. For many, the change is a result of a crisis. So how can research best support farmers in these leaps of change? You know, like some of us are really good at that incremental development of knowledge. And I think that that's absolutely an important, crucial part of science and research. But I also think we need to provide space to take more risks in research. And I think that when you take more risks, that's when you've got the opportunity to really go after some of these really big ideas that producers in particular are coming back with. And so how do we support that? How do we enable that? How do we fund that? particularly in a, a risk-averse environment. So much of our research money is very much targeted towards applied industry outcomes. Kirsty recognises that we need a whole farm approach. This is extending into policy spaces, but is creating some challenges. For example, the Emissions Reduction Fund has been a central part of the Australian government's climate policy today. It is looking to introduce an integrated farm method for carbon accounting including both vegetation and soil, 
which would create a more holistic approach. There's been some development around an integrated farm management carbon methodology. So at the moment you sort of do soils or you do trees or it's it's quite separate. But can we put those together in ways that reflect some of this sort of stacking and layering? And so, okay, you add trees over the top of soils. Okay, that's one element. And the easy way to do that is just to add the two together in the same space. But, of course, we know that when you put the two together, you get all these other beneficial interactions and so I think the discussion around the development of that method certainly was about how do we reflect some of those broader outcomes that that happen those broader synergies and so I think there is a growing recognition of the need to address those but how you do that's really difficult and that's I think part of the challenge part of the exciting part of it of doing research but I think yeah how do you capture that in a way that's sufficiently robust and reliable that we can have some confidence in it So Kirsty, what inspires you about working with these farmers? When I talk to producers about what they're doing with their landscapes and where they see that that can go, like that, that is just incredible to me. Like we're all really passionate about this space. You know, we we recognise the urgency of responding to climate change. We see the opportunity that producers have to to build resilience to to. Um, mitigate climate change to to help themselves adapt and you know and I just love eating food you know it's such an important part of my life that you know to get really good quality food that's you know comes from landscapes that are really well managed for two-thirds of my farming life I was going hell for leather with my foot on the accelerator trying to throw enough money around in agronomy to grow enough stuff to make a profit and that was seen to be success. Industrial farming has led to the loss of 70% of organic carbon in soils worldwide. David Marsh is a grazier from Burrowa, New South Wales and is a 2018 National Land Care Award recipient. He is a strong advocate for shifting to regenerative farming practices, having been on his own journey after some life-changing moments. Back in 1982, that was a bit of a watershed year for us, as far as shocking us into a mindset of starting to look at change. Because in 1982, it was a short drought. Everyone remembers it because it, the effect of it was very severe on the landscape. We were fully stocked, as was everybody. We ran into a very dry year with no spring at all and the result of that in the landscape was that it it completely denuded the landscape. The sheep market and the livestock markets completely collapsed. In those times you couldn't sell stock, people were shooting animals. It was a very devastating time for farmers who loved their farms to see the way they looked and then to have to deal with the consequences of making decisions where we kept too many stock didn't reduce numbers and we kept animals for far too long because we were sort of trapped. From a simplistic point of view, I think many, many farmers, and I was certainly one of them, had what I call an economic relationship with the landscape. When you're in that mindset, you tend to ignore the effects that your management has on other things. What effect is it having on the people? And also, what effect is it having on the future resource base of the farm? So those things are ignored when you just have an economic relationship. Since that challenging period, David has changed his practices, adopting holistic grazing management principles with his sheep and cattle operations. 
But David's regenerative journey wasn't a straightforward one. I got involved in conservation when I was an industrial farmer. So, you know, we were doing a lot of tree planting and got heavily involved in land care and trying to educate ourselves and other farmers in the district to another way of thinking. I wasn't thinking about holistic management at all then, really. When I was doing the course up at Orange, we had to do this thing that revealed whether we were eco-centric or techno-centric thinkers. One of those things where you've got a quadrant and they ask you a whole lot of seemingly random questions and you plot your answers on the quadrant, it showed that I was a very, very strong eco-centric thinker. And it hit me like a ton of bricks, really, because I was behaving in a completely opposite way to the way I really deeply am. And that's why I was feeling so much unease about what we were doing. I needed that to point it out to me, really. David started reading everything you could find on managing nature. And in those texts, he found research-based evidence that could support him on his journey. I'd have to say I'm a bit of a hound for digging out information. I'm a very self-directed learner, I would say. So I read widely and I pick up in what I'm reading things that add to what I'd like to understand about how the world functions. I've read the Andre Wazam book, uh, Grass Productivity, which was where the ideas of what is the difference when you start managing land for recovery rather than just set stocking. The research that Andre Wazan did in the late 40s, early 50s in France, two areas of land beside each other. One was managed with set stocking. Livestock had access to the plants the whole time. The other area was managed large numbers in small areas, quick graze and keep moving. So allowing for recovery of the grasses and plants before they were grazed again. And when he did that, where it was managed for recovery, the ecosystem grew two to three times the amount of biomass compared to set stocking. Now that is an incredibly important figure. And the results of that were profound and very meaningful to me. For David, this research insight shaped his relationship to the landscape around production and recovery. He was focused on reintroducing complexity and in doing so, realized we need to take flexible rather than prescriptive approaches. He also realized that this is a challenge for the research community. Those who seek to set up an experiment, and when you look at the experiments, I've seen numbers of them, and you just know that it's just not going to tell you anything that would be meaningful because they've controlled all the variables. It's it's not flexible, and that's the absolute hallmark of what we're doing, is it's so incredibly flexible. And it's not something you, you do the planning and that's it for the year. You're planning in your head daily as you go around but you've got a grazing plan that changes with the season as it, as day length shortens and temperatures go down or it doesn't rain. The landscape reacts to that. You know, we're seeing it now. We've had a couple of wonderful seasons, but the growth behind the stock as they're moving at the moment is slowing down. So we have to react to that. And that's what we failed to do a lot of times. So if working with nature delivers the best outcomes... David, why has research become so focused on controlling nature? It's the business end of agriculture that's holding it back because, you know, I used to spend a lot of money on fertilisers and herbicides, all those sorts of things that you can't do industrial agricultural practice without. And I didn't realise the other effects that that has. But what's the payoff for the money that industry funds research with 
if they go down the track that me and others have, have gone down where you don't need a lot of those products. That's what's holding it back, I suggest. As soon as industry started funding research in universities, they want a product to sell at the end of the research. So the research questions get narrower and they're not asking any of the questions that I think are really important. We know a lot of the things that we should be doing that give a better result in the landscape, but is there a big enough payoff? And I think that's probably one of the problems with research is it's always about, you know, this is going to increase production. Well, it's actually not increasing production, it's increasing yield. The production is, you know, the total respiration of a living system. And the words of the research get it wrong. They're talking about increasing yield. Now, when you increase yield, you know, there's a whole lot of things that happen. And one of them is simplification. So if we're going to have a future as a species, we need to very quickly have the results from agriculture doing things that are consistent with the, the trend of evolution, which is to elaborate and diversify. We're creating the opposite of that with agriculture mostly. So the, the research questions where they're looking at increasing yield, that's the wrong question, I think. The research question should be, what's this question we're trying to ask? What's its effect going to be on getting in line with increasing elaboration and diversity in the landscape. And I, I don't think there's too much of that going on. So David, how do we adjust our practices in the face of climate change? To try and produce a, a plant that's going to grow in a drier area as the climate changes, that's pretty futile, I think. We'd be much better off to adapt our behaviour in the areas where agriculture can be practised and not try and bend the world to our will all the time, you know. We're much better to try and fit ourselves into the way the world functions. And I, I don't know whether there's any research at all on doing that, but the outcome from agriculture has to get away from simplifying landscapes and losing biodiversity to allowing biodiversity to increase. In a way, this is about complex landscapes being more resilient. That's what David's saying. At Soils for Life, our research is showing that farmers who are focused on landscape resilience generally have more resilient businesses, businesses that perform better in difficult years. And Kirsty sees this focus on resilience is often missing in other research. Some of the producers that, that I'm working with um, are telling me that they feel that there's so much focus on yield. There's not enough consideration of the broad impacts of profitability. So certainly input costs in cropping in particular are just getting up so high that there's not enough consideration about resilient landscapes and that particularly as, as producers are having to cope with more extreme weather events. And certainly the opportunity, I guess, to, to really focus on those questions about how do we work better with ecological function and rebuild that in our systems. So improving water infiltration, water storage and broader landscape management or, or movement of water across our landscape. How do we uh, improve resilience in our systems, whether that's resilience to disease or, or to, to those weather events? And I think that um, often within the research sector, there's often a real focus on, on or there's a, a need or pressure to, to do research that's going to result in commercialisable returns um, to help support ongoing research. And, and it creates a real problem because a lot of these aspects around resilient landscapes and ecological function, they're actually knowledge intensive. They're about how you approach your management rather than here's a product we can sell you. And so it becomes more difficult to actually get funding for those sorts of research projects. And producers are really saying we're not having these broader needs met and they want a broader focus on those aspects. Mm -hmm.
So, how does the research community broaden out its focus to look at the management approaches of these regenerative farmers? Dr. Liz Clark is an interdisciplinary researcher, educationer and practitioner. She is a senior fellow at ANU and Charles Sturt University and currently a consultant at ThinkPlace Global. My training was as an agricultural scientist, so I was taught about a, an industrial system of, of inputs and outputs with soil as an inert substrate. And, you know, just the wonderment to discover that ecosystems don't stop at the farm gate and all of the possibilities in terms of disease control and management, in terms of pest management, in terms of crop health and um, nutrient density, has just been an amazing discovery for me as a researcher. Often research focuses on one element of a farming system without looking at the landscape as a whole. So Liz, how can research embrace the complexity of holistic land management? There's a couple of things in there. I think one of them is, is having a holistic view. So you're not just looking at a tiny little piece under the microscope, but you're thinking about how the system works together. So it's not just about the thing, it's about the relationships and the interactions, particularly in, e in an ecological sense. The second thing is that local context is really important. And whether you're a farmer or a researcher or whatever, you need to think about the context. So trying to roll out a one size fits all solution right across Australia for every enterprise, forget it, it's not gonna work. It's gotta be locally adapted, even, even to the point of what suits those particular people in that particular community. We made a deadly mistake when we came here in that we didn't listen. We didn't listen to the people who'd been managing the land here for however many tens of thousands of years. And we didn't think about how different this environment is to the one that we all came from, whether it's Northern Europe or the UK or whatever. And I think we persisted with that. And I think that's why some of the Indigenous land management movements are so exciting, because it's us trying to go back to thinking about our environment as a unique and specific environment right down to the local level. Given we are largely out of tune with the environment and that our natural complex ecosystems have been degraded and we are facing global warming, do you think we're asking the right questions in research? In the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, the answer to the world, the universe and everything is 42. The problem is nobody knows what the question is. We don't ask the right questions. Not only do we not ask the right questions, we don't ask the questions that the farmers are asking. So people like David, who are deeply connected observers, you know, their observations, they're there, their eyes and all of their senses are on the ground there all the time. What better source of research questions can you think of? Which is why researchers need to get on farms more and listen, listen and observe and take in the experiences of those farmers. And that's where some of the social science comes in important. It's not just having a chat in the paddock. It's actually really thinking and, and processing a lot of that experiential content that they're giving you and respecting that. It's not always scientifically proven or some of it's maybe a bit off beam, but some of it, you know, there's gold there. So Liz, what is the role that research can play in helping others move towards regenerative practices? What we're moving out of in the regenerative space is the, the really early innovators, the mavericks like Charlie Massey and David Marsh and Colin. And we're, we're slightly more mainstream now. We've got a bunch of what you'd call early adopters who these guys are the kind of people who have that entrepreneurial spirit, who just go out and do things. 
ask questions where they need to. I think the next group probably need a bit more support and the group after that probably need more support again. You periodically have to go through the valley of death. So if you, you have to make mistakes if you're going to be an innovator. And what you want to do is make mistakes that aren't deadly, that aren't going to destroy your business. So you're going to have to go through phases where you try something and it doesn't work. And there's kind of this valley of death where you start to really doubt whether you're doing the right thing. And that's where you need that support of your own pharma colleagues, of researchers, of other expertise to help them to process what's happened with that failure and then to move on to the next innovation and hopefully the next success. We need to try to understand that better from a research and evidence perspective. Maverick farmer Cole Sice, who's been pasture cropping for over 30 years, says he's still learning about how his landscape functions and sees researchers playing an important role. One of the most interesting things about pasture cropping, it stimulated the germination of perennial grass seed or native seed that's, that, that have sat dormant in the soil for decades, if not longer. I found out very quickly that we were getting this, this small like recruitment of native grassland species coming up in the row, in my case, for the oats was sown, that was pasture cropped. Now, we don't know why that happens, but it is the single most important thing that pasture cropping does, because we can not only grow crops, but we can restore grasslands, and we can restore grasslands all over the world. And if we can restore grasslands, we, we can then get our, get our farms functioning as ecosystems. We can build soil carbon we can get our soils functioning as soil ecosystems. We can restore the whole lot very, very rapidly if we can restore the grasslands. Now, we, what the answer we don't know, know is why. Why is this happening? We, we've got a few ideas why. One theory is that pasture crops pited into soils exude sugars and stimulate nearby dormant native seeds. And because the soil is healthy and chemical free, they grow. Any seeds that are sitting in that zone of, of a native grass seed that could have been there for 50 years, now I know it's, it's healthy to germinate. It's almost as though these things have sat there, knew that if they germinate into a hostile environment, they weren't going to survive. But now they have an environment they, they can germinate and grow into that they know they're going to survive in because it's healthy, because it, there's no chemicals there. There's very, very little there that, that, that is going to stop them. That's what we think is happening, but we have no real proof on that. That's just soil ecologists and, well, mostly scientists have tossed in there. This is probably what's happening, but we don't fully know why. But that'd be a wonderful thing to know. Whilst Colin doesn't have answers yet, researcher Kirsty Yates is optimistic about the direction that research is starting to take, where it is incorporating traditional knowledge, farmers' experience and modern scientific methods. Within the soil space in particular, which is one of the areas that I work with, there's this growing recognition of the role of soil biology. And I think um, producers, particularly in the region ag space, um, uh, have been already thinking about this for quite a long time and trying to work with uh, soil biology and improve the way that it, it, it functions. Um, but what we're seeing in the research side is, is this really extraordinary development of technology that allows us to um, sequence um, DNA, so better understand what's actually in the soil biology and the analytical tools associated with that are also developing. And this is opening a whole range of opportunity to better understand what's happening in our soil and how we can better work with those processes that have been really important to, to produce 
businesses for quite a long time. Um, I think the capacity to monitor landscapes at large scales, so remote sensing in particular, but also increasingly the use of drones, um, help us to to monitor and more objectively demonstrate some of those changes that producers have been telling us have have been happening. And I think um, there is an increasing focus on on carbon in agricultural landscapes, obviously tied in with with climate change, both mitigation and adaptation. But I think um, we're also seeing a broadening out of of that focus that it's not just about carbon, but that recognition that actually there's all these other interacting processes and factors um, that contribute to that, for example, um, water cycles and so on. That I think together those um, elements are really creating a space where there is more interest um, and a, a growing focus from the research community on those things that have been important for quite a long time. So for me, that's one of the areas of research that I'm working in. And it's actually really exciting to be able to respond more effectively to some of those questions. For Kirsty, the research sector can play a role in helping farmers to answer these complex ecological questions. But we need to remember that it's people who make decisions about managing the land. Liz Clark says that research from social science is important when it comes to change. I was a biophysical scientist and I went over to training as a social scientist. And my experience initially was one of my colleagues said to me, oh, you're embracing the dark arts of social science. But I think that even quite recently, social science has been the little sister to the biophysical. They just kind of tack it on. And it doesn't inform the research from the beginning. And I think that they need to be more closely dovetailed rather than seeing one as subsidiary to the other. And I still think we've got a way to go to do that, not just in agriculture. Schools like Fenner School, where they have a strong interdisciplinary focus, are really important. In fact, quite a lot of the the students who wanted to study agriculture came to Fenner because they got sustainable agriculture, they got human ecology, they got ecology, they got that breadth of experience that you don't get at a muddy boots agriculture degree. And I think that's the challenge for agricultural education is to embrace that and to move to to introduce things like ecological research and concepts, to introduce a a greater focus on the broader livelihoods experience and on different ways of learning and understanding and how we actually share knowledge. Academic institutions play an important role in fostering future thinkers and researchers. But it's not just academia that needs to adapt its understanding of resilience in these complex and diverse farming systems. Industry and government also play a big role. Engaging with the different levels of policy and institutional arrangements is really important. You can't leave that out. Because in the end, what, however well you're doing at the ground level, you're going to find blockages from the point of view of some of the institutional arrangements around, I don't know, how food is distributed, about what's legal and what's not on your land. Things like cap, um, covenants on land is a really good example. You know, people want to regenerate, rebuild native communities, but sometimes they end up restricted because the rules are such that um, they can no longer graze, even if that good grazing management is what created the healthy ecosystem in the first place. And that to me is the huge opportunity in regenerative agriculture, is people like David who have this deep connection with the land, that observation over years and years, that place-based knowledge that is irreplaceable, connected up with 
this diverse array of disciplinary expertise plus the right policy instruments, we can change the world. But change can be really difficult and can feel like it's happening one person at a time. But actually, you don't need to go it alone. We know that working together in groups can be very powerful to build confidence. Both David and Colin recognise how important working with others has been in their journey. There's a lot of people thinking about doing things, but the barrier to them getting in is lack of confidence. And I was absolutely one of them because I, I was thinking about it for 10 years before I actually did anything concrete to move in another direction. And it took me 10 years to get up confidence to actually think I could do something different without going out of business. If you're in a business and you feel like it's at risk, you know, someone comes to you and says, this is a fantastic idea, you know, why don't you have a go at this? Well, you're actually taking on another risk by doing something different. But there's enough evidence around now. There's a lot of people who've been trained in holistic thinking in Australia. You know, more than 10,000 farmers have done some training in it. With someone like me, I grabbed it boots and all and went for it, and some people do that. But a lot of people, and very wisely so, they want to hasten slowly so that they don't overcommit themselves and fall down. And, I mean, I, I didn't fall down. I, I, it's been a wonderful thing for us, and that's why I like talking about it. But it's a difficult thing in every field of human endeavour. It's hard to have change. You know, humans don't like change. Unless our lives are threatened. If our lives are threatened or our existence is threatened, then we start to pay attention. And that's why there's more attention being paid now because you know, the scientific evidence is that our behaviour on Earth is not being good for the planet. And it's the thing that gives us our lives. So we've got to pay attention. The main reason that I've found that people change, people come to me and want to change or I go on their farm, there's a couple of things. They've tried industrial agriculture, a lot of fertiliser, either on pastures or with crops, and they know it's costing them more than they're making. They're putting more and more and more, more fertiliser and pesticides on. It's just far too expensive. And that is a big reason why they change. Many people also are new to agriculture that I run into. They bought a farm, and a serious farm, not a, a lifestyle farm, but they've bought thousand or two thousand acres some of them and almost instinctively know that they don't want to go down the industrial model way they don't want to be using pesticides and herbicides and all that stuff they want to change but they don't know how the, the advice they're getting is the standard old stuff in this episode we've just scratched the surface about the ways research can support those who are managing the landscape health to aid this thirst for knowledge and provide valuable advice there first needs to be considerable change in the research space. As discussed throughout the podcast, more genuine interaction and consultation with farmers must occur. And the farmer's experience and the complex variables of each farm within the broader environment need to be taken into account. The benefits of this approach will help promote more positive outcomes such as ways to strengthen soil biology and increase resilience, diversity and overall landscape health. It's not a simple task, and one undisputed concept is the importance of working together. Building landscape health requires a long-term approach by multidisciplinary teams. One research team or one researcher or one farmer can't solve all these problems, that there needs to be that sharing of knowledge and that we're only going to speed up adoption of 
better land management of regenerating soil and landscapes if we actually share those learnings and move on to the next set of challenges and, and issues. In the end, the farmers are the ones with the skin in the game. They're the ones taking the risk. And whatever we're suggesting or whatever we're researching needs to bear in mind their appetite for risk. And we should be helping them to reduce risk and increase resilience rather than push the system to its limits. This podcast has been produced by the Grow Love Project in collaboration with Soils for Life and is supported through funding from the Australian Government's National Land Care Program. The episode was mixed and edited by Edgar Sgreste and we'd like to thank all our guests for their time and insights. For more information, check out the links in the show notes, sign up to the Soils for Life newsletter and be sure to subscribe to the podcast. Thanks so much for listening.